Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossoff with your host, Paul Frederick. Welcome, fellow friends and Damons, to another episode of Damonosophy. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Flowers, former University of Texas professor and lecturer and a PhD of Germanic and medieval studies, founder of the Rune Guild, the study in Vegas of the word runa. He's written dozens of books, many of which you may have heard me talking about on this show, like Lawyers of the Left Hand Pass or The Good Religion. Dr. Flowers, welcome to the show. It's such an honor to have you. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm uh, looking forward to speaking with you. Excellent. So I have to ask you this question. This is what I like to ask everyone. How did you first find the left-hand path? How did I first find the left-hand path? Well, you know, I was a kid uh, not in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, and it was uh, strange things were in the air in those days, uh, and so uh, I saw things about Anton LaVey and all that kind of thing, just got fascinated with that uh, when I was in high school, and then uh, subsequently uh, joined that organization, which was nothing more than uh, just uh, writing in and getting a, a, a medallion and a uh, card and all that sort of thing, and so I never met anyone or was involved with anybody in that organization uh, back then, and so it was just the beginning of a more formal kind of approach to this as opposed to just reading about it and thinking about it and so forth, and so that's what I would say I first sort of uh, got some familiarity with the idea and with the uh, the term, let's say, and say, well, this is okay to uh, rebel against the status quo of uh, of human and uh, my social and cultural environment, and uh, so that was the beginning of it. Uh, it was just things that were uh, very much a part of popular culture uh, in those days. And uh, so not many people acted on it, of course, but I was kind of odd that way. <laughs> and so this <laughs> is around in the in the early 70s? Well, uh, yeah, early, very, very early, you know, 1970, 1971, right in there. I wrote, a, uh, you know, in uh, high school, uh, in most high schools everywhere, I would imagine you have to, in your senior year, you write a major research paper, you know. And I was also always fascinated with horror movies, horror science fiction movies and such, because I was a monster kid growing up in the early 60s and so forth, being a kid back then, and that was also just part of the popular culture. And so I, I wrote my paper on uh, basically uh, the history and uh, reality and such that was to be found in the Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. Wow. And uh, so that's what I wrote my 
paper on, and in doing research for that, you couldn't find any research materials in the library of the school for this. So I started. I went to bookstores, uh, local malls there in in Dallas, and uh, found books on the occult and witchcraft and all kinds of things. Some of which referenced Anton Lavey and had chapters about him in there, and he kind of talked about that kind of thing, uh, also as far as vampires and the occult aspects of it and all of that, so I kind of, he was in this paper, I, I worked him in there and and so forth, so, and then uh, subsequently I uh, sort of took that kind of interest again into a more serious uh, direction, which didn't last very long because I just got more involved in more, more broad-based kind of interests and in all kinds of esoteric matters uh, subsequently. So you wrote about Anton LaVey in your in the high school newspaper. In my high, in the high school, just my research paper for okay. uh, senior English, and actually, uh, the teacher that I had. This is where synchronicity. That's really wild. Uh, the teacher that I had, she said, "Oh, she noticed this reference where she read this thing, and she said, oh, this guy says, uh, I had a student here who uh, whose parents were in this group.'" Wow. And, uh, you know, we're in this organization. I said, oh, really? Well, you know, and so, you know, that was about it at that point. But then subsequently I discovered that uh, that these were the uh, people, the only people in Dallas at that time. Uh, and when I joined the organization, I got a letter, part of the letter from the uh, Black House, you know, said, uh, uh, oh, our, our local people in Dallas just moved. These were the... A married couple, I can't remember their first names, but they were, they were the Pipkins. Wow. Yeah, their name was Pipkin, and this their son was in the same school as I was previously and actually had this same teacher. Wow. Yeah. And this That's guy, this, these Pipkins, uh, Paul, I think it was Paul Pipkin, uh, they, they wrote an uh, article for the Cloven Hoof, which I subsequently acquired all of the back issues of the Cloven Hoof, Hither and Young, and uh, this guy actually wrote a article in there about uh, the magic and story of O and all of that sort of thing, which would have been, it's a good thing I probably didn't meet him <laughs> in high school, but, uh, you know, that would have really been a little too much too soon probably, but uh, anyway, it all that there are certain synchronicities there that just continued. Yeah, it's amazing how you make uh, how you pass so near to to certain people in your past. Mm-hmm. That eventually, kind of like lead you towards other people. Um, you know, it's sort of this this idea of like find the others, like Timothy Leary says, like find the yeah. others. Like you start to look at this, you start to look at that, and it starts to lead you to something else and to someone else, and all of a sudden you're on you're on a path of some kind. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I think that's one of the downfalls or problems with our culture today is all of this digitalized experience whereby everything is happening in this not not world of 
the here and now of, of you know knowing actual human beings or even coming into their sphere or environment and i, I don't think that the the special knowledge can pass through the computer it's never been my experience so is that is that the um, the power of oral tradition Oral tradition or just being in the presence, even uh, I think just like Gurdjieff talks about being in contact with higher men, as he called it, right? And so so uh, earlier we were talking about you've got a new book that's going to come out soon, which, which I think might tie in with this. It's called Retribalized Now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this kind of sounds along those lines of, of, of direct contact is an important, vital aspect of the human experience. Can you, can you tell us a little about that? Sure. Uh, that's uh, exactly that sort of thing, uh, the world of community and the necessity of, uh, in the future, especially a bit to return to the past models of our culture, which have worked. And it worked in the past because it had to work. People could not survive and certainly not thrive in this world without a tribal support system. That's, that's the only way they could possibly survive. And uh, today we have governments and all kinds of structures, economic and so forth, uh, structures which replace a lot of the uh, physical necessities of our existence. But in that uh, trade-off, there were also in the original uh, social order, there were spiritual or psychological or other dimensions of human happiness and a sense of solidarity and loyalty and, and identity that were, were tied up with tribal existence. And uh, those things are, are certainly lost, and there's no reason why we have to permanently lose those things. We can, we can uh, regain them if we just will it so. No one is going, uh, stops us, if we are wise and prudent about the way we go about it, from re-tribalizing and, and uh, reconstructing these tribal uh, cultures for ourselves. And one of the things that people often talk about tribal existence, and it's sort of semi-popular to talk about it, but one of the things that's always missing, or almost always missing, is uh, the idea that the, there's really a proximity principle. People have to be close to one another. They have to have regular and easy contact with one another. They don't have to live in the same village or uh, uh, area, could, or, but not necessarily, but they do have to be able to be in contact with one another to help each other out. Hey, my car broke down. Come on over. You know, I'll fix that. Mm-hmm. I'll, we'll help one another. We've got to be able to, to make life easier for one another. That's what old tribes were. That's what new tribes uh, can be. And with, that's the practical dimension that uh, a lot of people, they have ideological constructs. Oh, we believe this. We have, they're, they're more like cults than they are really tribes. In a tribe... People just because they were of the same background, organically, uh, linguistically, in every other way, they had the same 
cultic life, religion, if you will, uh, worship the same gods, etc. But that was just a natural outcome of the circumstances of life. Uh, it's not, uh, and within tribes, there were all kind, there was all kinds of spiritual diversity in ancient times as far as the kinds of gods that that particular family or person might gravitate towards because they were in general obviously polytheistic people. Uh, but today even in those who uh, espouse the idea of uh, being polytheistic or being pagans or heathens or whatever you want to call it, uh, they nevertheless are really oftentimes what I call crypto-Christians in the sense that they have uh, uh, internalized this idea of orthodoxy and that uh, they will say, for example, in the world of Asatru, which I've been a part of for most of my life, uh, but someone will say about me or someone else or somebody they don't like what they say, they'll say, oh, he's not real as a true, right? And they're just like saying you're a heretic. But real pagan systems, we observe, uh, if you go to uh, India where you see a Hinduism or a Shinto or whatever, they don't, aren't constantly saying, oh, this guy is a heretic, Mm-hmm. Right there, there are no such litmus tests, dogmas, uh, such as developed in the Christian Church or in Islam or whatever. That's really a a program and a uh, uh, edifice of these orthodoxies. The exact purpose of which is to uh, cause individuals to uh, get their minds with the program, and there is a program, whereas real paganism doesn't have that. Right. So it seems to me that you don't really have heresy until you have centralized authority, until there's a central, uh-huh. there's like a centralized structure that attempts to control language, culture, and behavior. Then you have heresy. You don't really have it before that. Right. And there's the idea that everybody's going to be, no, it's like a linguistic fact. And it's also something I learned that was also true in the history of religion, that uh, no two people have the same exact language. They can be American English speakers from the same town, (laughs) from Mississippi, Mm -hmm. wherever, but if a linguist analyzes it, they will pronounce things slightly differently. They have a different vocabulary. If you say, well, what's your lexicon that you've got stored in your brain? It's going to be different from family to family. There are family words, for example. Families will have words for objects that other families don't share, individuals, so that no two people have the same language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no two people obviously have the same religion. I don't care how much you've been browbeaten by a church into believing a dogmatic set of principles in your heart of hearts, you deviate from that. You don't. You can't help it. You wouldn't be human if you didn't. Mm-hmm. And so, trying to enforce these orthodoxies are very much a program for unhappiness, for dysfunction, and all kinds of bad things. 
Mm-hmm. So if you accept the difference, true diversity, we hear this word, it just makes me sick when I hear it because I'm constantly diverse, diverse, diverse. But most of the people who use that word are not interested in actual diversity. They want orthodoxy. They just mm-hmm. want external diversity, but internal, that is ideological, all kinds of other things, uh, beliefs and thoughts and ideas, they don't want any diversity there. Mm-hmm. So it's quite, uh, again, a program for, it's a program of command and control also. So mm-hmm. uh, we see it in politics, if ideological type politics, and we see it in religion and such. But a lot of the stuff you see in politics today are just secularized versions of the uh, medieval church, really. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, this is something that I've, I've reflected on before. You know, our, our modern Western civilization likes to make a big deal about separation of, of church and state. But what's really mm-hmm. happened is, is what, what's happened is the management and administration of orthodoxy has been transferred from church to state. So, mm-hmm. and, and, and since there's this idea that the state, uh, this idea that the state is all us, right, which is not right. really true, not really true, I don't think. I don't think that's really possible uh, for an organization to be everyone and we all own it somehow. But everyone feels this obligation to try and control that and push their ideas and their agendas through it to be on the winning side of it. And so um, what you have is just a new centralized authority that pushes down a, a new orthodoxy that, um, and, you know, Dr. Aquino has made this point about like 1984, 1984, when they reveal what the big reveals in there is that um, you have to um, control people's like sexuality in some kind of way. Right. Mm-hmm. In, order to, in order to create frustration and in order to be able to control the explosiveness that occurs amongst the civilization when they're um, oppressed and controlled in that kind of way. And clearly that's what the, you know, the, the Catholic Church was doing for like thousands of years during medieval times. But now yes. this authority has been transferred over to the government. So now the government is finding new ways to create the same sort of control and frustration with a new uh, I guess a, a new orthodoxy mm-hmm. about how about how we talk about things. Absolutely, yeah. We see it every, everywhere. Certainly, in all religions, like we see with the Islamic uh, radicals and that sort of thing, and uh, a lot of the troubles we have with uh, uh, these mass shooters and other things like that. You see that there are people who are frustrated. A lot of times, very much sexually frustrated uh, by the dysfunction of our whole culture that way. And uh, and they, these are like aberrations that uh, crop up in oppressive. We, are, we, we think of ourselves as so free. Oh, freedom, we are so free. We just do. Well, no, we're, there, there's many subtle uh, forms of oppression that go on uh, constantly in, in completely invisible ways, and they're invisible because people are in denial about, about it, that they are being oppressed. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, there are certain things about, oh, I'm oppressed, and then there's officially recognized and promoted forms of oppression, which are then translated into power. But 
when you scratch the surface to it, well, people are being oppressed, oftentimes self-oppression, so, uh, in the sense that their mechanism of uh, will and uh, desire and other things are, are crippled by the, the cultural circumstances, and they don't know how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so. so do you think that the transfer uh, the did tribal culture like like willingly but like voluntarily transfer this authority to a centralized system like via like what they, they talk about like social contract was that a voluntary thing that happened or was that a was that something that was forcibly taken did a central authority come and well in, in ancient times it was like you know I got if I'm not in this system. I'm dead. I'm literally dead. Uh, I, I won't have food to eat. I won't have, I, uh, somebody will take me captive and sell me into slavery in a matter of moments or days. I need this system in order to survive. Uh, one of the old runic inscriptions has a curse for, you know, formula on it about some that is, uh, has a stone and it's a cursing anyone who would break this monument down and then destroy the, the stone setting that was that this stone was a part of and the curse boils down to that the person will have a what's called, called a wretched death a wretch is somebody who's outcast from the tribe mm-hmm. and so uh they would be outcast. Anyone breaking this would be outcast and therefore die. So, uh, you know, that that's just a fact of life back then. So people didn't say, well, I have all these choices, you know. I could do this or I could do that. No, not really. You know, circumstances made it so that uh, they... Uh, that was life. That's the way life uh, was. So that's one of the profound differences between now and then is that there would be this uh, voluntarism, that there be a, a choice of, of joining, and then it becomes the uh, obligation or the task of the tribal organization to make life better. And if the formula works by just simply uh, applying it properly, and by that I mean not making it a cult, not making it a system of orthodoxy, making it primarily directed at practical uh, aspects of life as it was in ancient times, uh, and then leaving the individual free to make their own uh, choices of conscience by what they believe and think and what their uh, even politics and so forth are. Whatever it is, it's not that relevant uh, that we support one another. It's like a family. If we support one another, that's a, a fellow tribes person. We're going to help that guy out. We're going to uh, be helped out by them. And it's just an understood uh, network of solidarity and uh, identity. Yeah, people really naturally do this, too. People really naturally do this in tribal systems or, or family systems. Um, people will, you know, um, naturally just, like, voluntarily, like, help out people that they relate to. On right, a, if, on you, a, if on you're close basis. by. 
That's one of the things is like, oh, like we get these people, these, quote, friends on Facebook or something. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was like, oh, my friend, this friend uh, uh, lives in uh, in Ukraine. You know, it's like, you know, all they can do is send you a little heart or send you a, a sad face or some such bullshit like that. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. the extent of the way they can support you. No, that is not a tribe. That is not what it's about. It's it's what it's about now is what it was about then. And we're so addicted as a culture to these long distances. And this is nothing, even computers didn't start this. It was back many decades ago, it was just groups you joined by mail and got newsletters and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So that, that's that's no, it's a difference of degree perhaps, but if kind, it's the same kind. Mm-hmm. And that's what, what tribalism seeks to go beyond that barrier, beyond that, say, you've got to get together with people, they've got to be close by, and you've got to focus on uh, practical matters of life, not on ideology, religion, cult. Uh, The the individuals can be diverse. So that would be the first step. Now, the, the idea that there are certain ideologies which probably lend themselves better to a healthy tribal life than others, for example, if you did have a bunch of hardcore Christians, if all of them aren't that way, they soon will be because those hardcore Christian types who seek to enforce an orthodoxy will be constantly harping at the individuals in the community to to uh, submit to that mm-hmm. system of thought. So having system of uh, spiritual systems which do not require of your neighbors as they think like you do are probably a more healthy uh, direction to go for a tribal existence, one that respects mm-hmm. individual differences and expects them, respects and expects. Don't just say, well, I tolerate. I don't like the word tolerance. Tolerate. You tolerate a headache. You know, he's mm-hmm. a pain. That's so far, I tolerate it. No, I, re- I respect it and expect it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, totally I expect you sense. to be different. I expect you yeah. to have different ideas. And I respect those, as long as they are respectable ideas, in the sense that I might say, well, it's not very well thought out, or we're a mistake, we can discuss it, whatever. But no matter how crazy I think it is, you're, that's your thing. Now, for example, in my book, I point out, it's not written from, uh, it, it gravitates towards examples from Celtic, Germanic, kind of tribal past, but talks about all kinds of people and examples of uh, tribal the systems uh, that have worked and ones that haven't worked and why. Those that have worked, why are they successful, etc. But uh, so that's uh, I, I point out there that uh, these uh, groups that uh, have interact badly with their neighbors because they are uh, aggressive towards them, disrespectful towards them, like the Rajneeshis in in Oregon, you know, bringing down disaster on their own heads unnecessarily because they were just so arrogant and so uh, right. uh, 
uh, aggressive and all of that sort of thing. Uh, so you can see, well, that's uh, that's a bad program <laughs> as far as an attitude towards your where your host, because all tribes today would have to be in a in a larger political environment. So part of being successful is negotiating that. And I look at the tribe of the what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to uh, encourage, is to think of a tribe as a kind of a team. Mm-hmm. And in a team, like a football team, let's say, uh, there are different roles there. You can't, they can't all be quarterbacks. They can't all be linemen. You need people who are do a lot of different things in life, who have different talents, abilities, uh, skills and all sorts of things, and, and carpenters are just as important as teachers, and o- old folks are, are just as important as young ones, and so forth and so on. There's some there's a role for everyone. That's what you see. And we have throwaway people today in our world and culture. So you're useless now, economically mm-hmm. useless. Yet, of course, the old folks are, are in the old folks' homes, uh, rendered useless. Yet. Families are paying thousands of dollars a month for child care. Mm-hmm. That's what those old folks were there for. That's what they were right. intended to be in a healthy oh, yeah. tribal society. Right. And you're throwing them away, and it's just sick. And no, that's what I was thinking. We are sick. We're a sick culture. No, this is it's a big problem is that, is that the, the centralized authoritarian power structures come in and try to separate all these functions. Like children, mm-hmm. children have to be separated from their parents. They have to be dragooned into these public institutions for like, you know, like 16 years of their lives where they go and they get, they get programmed. They learn to be obedient. Um, they learn to be more effective, you know, um, effective producers or whatever. Um, and, and, and they're separated. They're, they're taken out. That, just that right there, the public school system prevents the evolution of our tribal systems right there, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't, you can't, you can't go, you can't learn just whatever in your group is, right? Whatever your, 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 your right. people that live around you are, mm-hmm. you're taken out of that at a very mm-hmm. early age. Um, and this is actually really new. People don't realize what a new innovation public school is. People think, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we've all, you know, all of us here, we're several generations have been brought up in this. So we just think it's normal. Um, but it's actually a very new thing, and there's no way that a, uh, a you know that we can continue to develop like that. And then, like you said, old age, you're you're separated over there too. So uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's just no way to get back to it. Right. So, but we have it in our control. That's sort of the thing is that people say, "Oh, what can we do? Look how messed up things are." I feel so impotent. I feel so powerless in the face of these cultural problems. What can I do? I, I, oh, I'll vote for this guy or that guy. It's no policy. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. You don't realize how you watch too much cable news and and soon come to believe that's the real world. You and other mad ideas like that. Uh, but this says you can take control of these things in your life, uh, not alone, it ha- but with, in, in cooperation with others, but it's doable. You can get uh, uh, 50 families, let's say 50 
They, they could be families, or they could be individuals, but you could get a, a really strong, functioning group together. Uh, and, of course, they would, they would stay together and be together and work together only to the degree that the system works. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't be just like, oh, we're together, we're like in a, a, a witch coven or something, and uh, we hang out and we do this. Uh, but, you know, I don't like that guy did this and that, and I'm going home, I quit, I'm out. Uh, because it's, no, I, I want to uh, pool our uh, our skill resources, other things like that, and so that if it works, which it will work if it is if you're close together, and you have a sense you've made some kind of formal commitment. And, of course, the missing component we haven't talked about at all here, and it sounds like, uh-oh, this is opening the door to a cult idea. But, and uh, to a degree, yeah, you could say that it is. But it's, but it's not a cult external to the tribe itself. It is something, it's a group myth mm-hmm. about who we are, why we are, and why it is good that we are this way, mm-hmm. and that we are good, we are together, we are, um, and we are special people. You know, I have a thing in there, calc- not calculated, but for sure, but upset some of my type readers. You know, uh, these alt right types. I have a thing about you know the, in there about the, the the secret of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. You know, people oh, these people they do it, these people are successful. They are tribal, and they have been for millennia. And mm-hmm. part of the myth is we are one people. It's not true, of course, but, you know, we are one people. We are special people, and we are smarter than the average bear, and we can do it, and we can succeed. And it is based on learning and intellectual performance, not on being a football player or some kind of nonsense and counterproductive right. nonsense like that but study hard and it's not just the Jewish people but Indians uh, Chinese they, they all follow this same uh, tribal kind of uh, motivation that we're, we're special we're separate and that gives identity solidarity and uh, you know, that kind of thing you just can't and it's, but it's it's uh, focused towards a practical end. It is a magical uh, ideology. In other words, like I've known uh, Jewish people much of my life. I was married to a Jewish woman for 17 years and so forth. I saw their family and how it all worked and who they were really and what they thought they were. You know, as far as the myths, it was a constant thing about myths in the family of saying, oh, we were like a, an illegitimate, we were related to the Romanovs, they were from Russia, you know. So it would be like, we're really royal people, you know. And, and that tells you, like, we're poor. What are you really? You're poor, downtrodden immigrants, you know, from Eastern uh-huh. Europe, out of some shtetl somewhere. But they instilled in their children, even though mama can't even speak English, pretty soon, maybe the next generation are up for a Nobel Prize, you see? Right. 
Yeah. Because that myth, that belief that I, we can succeed, we are special, we are different, and uh, of course sometimes that uh, engenders what I think, whether it's again all these uh, Indian kids that learn when the spelling bee and people, oh, those people, and they, uh, the jealousy and envy uh, draws ire from other people, but I always say, look at these, they are doing it on their own. It is achievement. It is, and, and they've mastered the idea of harnessing myth mm-hmm. and harnessing the, the idea of, of, of myth in a collective way, not just mm-hmm. an individual might approach it, develop a magical persona about their, how their divine self is this, that, the other thing. Now, what the tribal thing does is take it just one step further in sort of this hyper body uh, to, from the individual to a group mm-hmm. that will then have its mythology, and, and if it's, uh, and it has to be put into the crucible. That's the, uh, the the proximity factor. It can't be allowed to be too diffuse all over the world or all over the country or whatever. It has to be sort of bound in this space so that these elements can interact productively. Uh-huh. And then, then you got something bubbling. You got something cooking at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So this book, uh, I, and, uh, leadership, I am not a person who can lead such a thing. I've tried it. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. This requires special people. But my plan with this book is put this idea out there. Maybe a good leader is not somebody who can come up even with these ideas, can realize, mm-hmm. but can implement them. Again, that mm-hmm. team idea. And mm-hmm. a, a person who is a good leader will be somebody that has uh, this, this character that they're interested in other people. <laughs> and that's one of my problems, is I just am doing my own thing, and, you know, I'm not like want to meddle, you know, with your personal process, right? Right. I don't want to, like, a, the, 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 it could be a bad example, like people in, like in Wiccan covens, where, well, they work, or sometimes they work, and how do they work, and why? Well, you got this queen bee... Uh, priestess who meddles in every dimension of every one of these five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people's lives. They live for that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Constantly in the soap opera of the coven. That's a, and they're just messing with it all the time. They're, and they, they, they get them involved in the drama of this little group which goes nowhere and does nothing other than hangs out together and gets involved in each other's drama. But that's a, the, 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 the person who's leading it, somebody who's interested in all of their little things in life. And uh, so I'm, I'm not that way. And I don't think a good leader would be interested in but in, that, in people's lives and in helping them and all of that and getting real joy out of that, but not someone who's going to meddle in their life. More like a, a good parent, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're not going to just micromanage your kid's life and tell them what to do and what they're supposed to study and so forth and so on, but to be interested and support their uh, endeavors, whatever they might be, 
and guide them with the basic principles and so forth. But you do have to really be interested in what's going on. Just like a good parent, even if he had 10 kids, you would be interested in all of their lives and be interested in, uh, in helping all of them. You know, it seems like someone, someone like this, is that you're talking about the kind of person, the kind of leader who arises out of the necessity of circumstance versus the kind of person that comes in, hey, I'm a professional leader. I'm really good at this. Why don't you all let me lead you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which it immediately, you know, inspires mistrust from, right. from, smart, from smart people, but people who arise because of the situation. So I have this, um, I'll, I'll give you an example um, of a situation that I've been through recently. So I, I bought a, a townhouse here in, in Houston a while back, and um, we had, like, a really informal, like, HOA group, you know, and there's, like, 12 different townhouses. So there's, like, an HOA fee, and we have to use this money for stuff, and and there was this big controversy about fixing the gates. Like, no one wanted to mess with this. No one wanted to yeah. do it independently. But eventually what we did is we negotiated. We got everyone together like talking about it. And because we all have a common interest, you know, and there's all kinds of different people that live here, right? Different age groups, different races, you know, and, and, and everything, different religions. Obviously, I'm a different religion than a lot of other people here. But, um, you know, what, we all have a common interest in the property, right? Because we all own property right next to each other. We all want the property to be safe, to be valuable, to be, you know, to have integrity and stuff. And those common values brought us together to be able to make a decision um, about what we would do with this. And it actually harkens back to me something that you had said a long time ago, and this is when um, when you were talking, you were giving talks at Smithville one time when I came out there to Smithville. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how um, the founding fathers, when they came up with the idea of, of, uh, of uh, voting, that the idea that, like, if you own property, anyone who owns property is always going to vote in the best interest. They're always going to make decisions in the best interest of that property and that community there because they're a part of it. And they're always going to support other people. They're going to want other people in that community who – who are, who are owned property or you say connected to the land in some way, you know, depending on the, the tribal situation, they're connected with it in some way. They're, they're a part mm-hmm. of it. They're going to cooperate and make the best decisions that way too. So again, it brings everything back in, in my mind. It, it, it sounds like this model that you're talking about it brings everything back to geographic proximity, you have connections of uh, com- common values and common interest in, um, in these things, safety, you know, John Locke, John Locke says life, liberty, property, right? Mm-hmm. It's like that land is like, that's like a vital piece of it. Right. And, 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 and everyone uh, succeeds. You, you have a vested interest uh, in the success of your fellow tribes people, uh, as opposed to this world we live in where it's, uh, yeah. you know, a war of every man against all the others, right? Yeah. And that atomization of people, uh, isolated uh, and uh, alienated from one's environment, neighbors, people around, and all of that, and how that plays into the tyrannical program 
that if you feel unconnected to your uh, fellow uh, citizen, fellow uh, man around you, then you'll be more easily manipulated because, it, after all, we should, uh, on a uh, deep level, be, uh, ha- have a fear at that point that we are somehow uh, vulnerable and alone. Well, this and only right. Big Brother can help us. <laughs> Right, no, exactly. That's the mm-hmm. situation that you see in the big, uh, you know, metropolis areas now, where people live in really big cities. Everyone rents, and and that's a cool thing to do. And but no one like really trusts anyone. Like a person like you know running across you down the hall, they could be a killer. They could be you know John, you know, they could be you know Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, and, and no one really trusts each other. And the only thing that ever unites people is when, uh, the, you know, some kind of like central authority comes in and says, oh, we're all united because we are, we live in this city, you know, or we're all mm-hmm. united because we're this party, you know, big brother. Right. As we see, like with the hurricanes or whatever, that uh, disaster, which could be, in the ancient times, it's like a, the Huns are invading or something, or natural disaster, whatever. Something is that threatens the community's existence, then something kicks in. That the trick is to uh, get that spirit to kick in without a crisis. Yeah, you know. So that well, crises are avoided in the future, right? No, that's that's absolutely that's uh, you really touched on something there because uh, who was it? There's some political figure recently said, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." Yeah, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. That's the Rahm Emanuel. It's like every time there's a huge crisis like that, well, that you just you know now what's going to happen. They're going to use uh-huh. this as an excuse to uh, well, we need to increase. Uh, the police force locally, we need to militarize the police force a little bit more, or maybe we need to uh, have a little bit more control over social media so we know what people are talking about, or we need to detain people at airports for longer. Uh, and this is all for your own good, so because, you know, we had a crisis. Yeah, it's like the 9-11 thing. Okay, we, it's a bad thing happened there, that's so true. But uh, the, the immediate slogan that emerged the very next day is, every, the world is different now. The world, everything has changed. <laughs> well, you know, the, the Germans blitzed uh, London <laughs> on a nightly basis, bombing it. Constantly, it's like you know, the attitude was, well, get underground, go back to work the next day. Nothing, you know, nothing's changing. We're just nose to the grindstone, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. Sure, it's a, a difficult um, challenge, but it's not like, oh, the world has changed because we are, uh, look at what's happening. Uh, I'm just freaking out. Everything's got to change. No, mm-hmm. you know, that's just, that's just getting in to the very thing you say you're fighting. Yeah. You know, it should have been, oh, okay, you got to bomb these buildings. Is that all you got? You yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so the attitude, but that's people taking advantage, let, not, not letting the crisis go to waste because there's an agenda uh, waiting. You can either cause it. That's what these conspiracy theories, of course, going back to the Reichstag fire and all that sort of thing because that was... 
like a textbook case where you say this thing was either caused by or you know, guided by the forces of the Nazis caused it or had it happen, and then immediately, and this was just in a matter of weeks and months, theoretically that state, the German state, went from a parliamentarian system of the Weimar Republic to a national socialist state mm-hmm. in, in, in just a matter of a few months, total, mm-hmm. total press relation, uh-huh. and all key to that one event where nobody was even hurt, <laughs> you uh-huh. know? It's like, of course, there you see that the people had to be conditioned in a crisis kind of modality from a very complex, you know, circumstance as far as who is being manipulated at that point. Uh, say, well, that's what uh, we can manipulate these people by pushing these buttons, this populist, this uh, body politic, whereas uh, the United States would be much more difficult to uh, to manipulate. So that uh, you see that... Uh, educating the people badly for a long enough period of time, you know, destroying their sense of history and rootedness and whatever values they might have politically, historically, and other things is a long, long, long-term project. Whereas in Weimar, Germany, it was like a uh, boiling kettle already, you know? All you got to do is kick it over. It's already completely chaotic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I've heard uh, a, a so, similar uh, a similar thing about uh, Rome when uh, in ancient Rome when it went from being a, a uh-huh. republic to a, to a to an empire, and it was based on when they were raided. There was some pirates that raided like the port, and they set fire to it, and it wasn't that big of a deal. But it freaked out the citizenry so much. But they were like, oh, no, we got to make Caesar. we got to give Caesar, like, total power over this. And that was it. Uh, and that's it right there. They used that crisis excuse to just totally consolidate centralized power over everything, and that was the empire. And then from there, they ran on, on you know, uh, they, they ran off that steam for a while, but then eventually, you know, lose steam, inevitably. Yeah, they, they maintained their fiction that it was a republic even in the imperial times it wasn't uh, right that was like their motto of the senate and people of Rome the SPQR motto or you know that thing which is a symbol of Rome uh, Senatus Populosque Romanus uh, you know remains this kind of that's true like if you look at the the constitution of the Soviet Union, if you read it, you say, this looks just like the American Constitution. It's not what's on paper. It's not what's the official thing, but the culture and other factors that make, you can take this and say, well, that's just a fiction, and this is the way it really works. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so that it's... Uh, it's well, like a lot of things that people say about what's going on in our country today. Uh, certain changes were made uh, in the Constitution. For example, when you remove the, uh, when you start to elect the senators directly, 
that's like a real downfall in the republic because uh, the states no longer have representation in the federal government as states. Mm-hmm. They are now just it's just a, it's just a, another a higher different uh, uh, house of representatives. That's all. Uh-huh. So it's like we have two houses of representatives. They're both democratically elected. You know, originally, it was only your own representatives. That was your voice in the federal government. The state had its voice in the form of the senators. And uh, and the senators were elder people, uh, states people. They were uh, supposed to be well, former great people of the state, right? And you look at these senators we have now, so these are just... They're, they're nobody. They're just, I ran for Senate instead of uh, the other office, but, uh, you know, like special uh, qualities or or uh, types of qualifications or background or anything. It's just another, and when they changed that, that fundamentally changed the, the, the way that we uh, do things, as well as property, the, the allowing of property tax is another cosmological step away from a real a functioning republic, because again, we have this, people don't own a part of the state, of the, of the, uh, of the land, of the country, and so uh, I really have to pay tribute to the uh, government in order to keep their land or their property. So they have to pay tribute, and they don't own it the way that a monarch owned the land of his, like England, the king of England owns England. Mm -hmm. All the people, you don't buy land there, you lease it for a long period of time. But the monarch owns it. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so the idea uh, we had was that uh, the people, it wasn't just us, I mean, they go, they went, so they went back to Anglo-Saxon law limiting the, king, the power of kings and that the king really ruled uh, by the consent of the nobility, of the tribal leaders who elected mm-hmm. the king. Mm-hmm. And they, they, he didn't rule just because... I'm the oldest son of the last king, and God ordains, and all that kind of stuff. That's just a, that's just a program for disaster, uh, which played out many times in history, of 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 of, bringing, of promoting completely unqualified people to, into power. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the tribal, ancient uh, Anglo-Saxon tribal uh, circumstance, the nobility. Uh, elected the king, and they elected the kind of king that was right for the time. They needed a war leader. They elected a war leader, and if they needed somebody who's just going to sit there and say, "Fine, whatever you say," because everything's running well and everybody's doing their thing, and we don't need uh, somebody to meddle in our affairs. We just have a figurehead, basically, mm-hmm. and. Sometimes that we we wouldn't they need that. So uh, the kind of things that we think of as a kind of ideal circumstance today, they already had that in ancient times. But not all peoples have that, of course. I mean, that was just peculiar to 
the Anglo-Saxons, and of course we have other examples in the Germanic world where we see re functioning republics like in Iceland and on Gotland, mm -hmm. the island of Gotland, mm -hmm. that uh, were republics. And uh, so that the local people sent representatives to a parliament and all this stuff and goes back to pagan times. So the, yeah. But it was an empowering of locality, of local peoples. Right. And also, um, Ireland, under the uh, Tuat system, uh, mm -hmm. which is Tuat, or local tribal chieftains, uh, up through like the 10th century, Murray Rothbard like, writes about this, um, how it, it was basically that is how Ireland was not conquered by England. For like thousands of years, England was trying to conquer them through all of this like, time period, but they couldn't do it because they'd make a deal with one tribal, you know, one Tuat chieftain, and the other two chieftains will be like, well, I didn't, I didn't agree to that. So if mm -hmm. they came over, they were going to get, they were going to get conflict. And it was only after Ireland, you know, after the 10th century, I can't remember when exactly, they, they finally like, you know, centralized under a king. Well, that was it. Then, then the British could come in, find that king, you know, and and take control that way because it, you know, once you have a centralized authority authority like that, it. It, it goes down to the whole infrastructure. It affects the whole infrastructure of mm -hmm. things and actually makes the people, like, more um, vulnerable to an attack. Right. It makes them a whole lot more more vulnerable. But those, those systems, just like in Scotland, which is Scotland, of course, is just an extension of Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but uh, that's what the clan system and such, that the, uh -huh. that's why Scotland was so hard to, to conquer. I mean, if you look at the ancient history, what happened on the British Isles is that <clears throat> the Romans came in and conquered that part that we think of as England today, and were there for 400 years, administering it and wrecking, you know, the local politics, of course, and installing a Roman system. And then around 400, the Romans pull out, just leave the territory entirely because they can't hold up under the invasions of the, from the north, from the Germans. And so they just pull out of Britain altogether. And that's when the Anglo-Saxons move in to Britain. But where do they conquer? Well, what part of the island do they conquer? Well, they conquer only the part of it, not for want of trying elsewhere, but that was formerly the, part, the Roman part, because the interest that this culture had been destroyed there. There was no, you know, they couldn't stand up against an invader, an you know, organized invader. So they fell, and, uh, and that's how England comes to be. And why? Then they say, well, now we're going to move into what's the Wales. Uh, those guys are, you know, there's more trouble than it's worth to conquer them or to go too far north. Again, those guys get crazy up there, and we're just going to stop here. Go to the same place where the Romans stop. You know. Yeah. But the English so, tried to invade the Scotland and did so successfully over the years, but it never completely uh, subdued or pacified them. So. Hmm. So and even um, now. Yep. So a recurring theme that I'm hearing, and, and a lot of things that you're talking about here, especially like in in, uh, in in getting back to a more tribalistic culture, is you talk about the need for 
voluntarism and, and the ability of individuals to make voluntary decisions about their lives and to, to, to make a, 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 a conceptual jump here. This is something I've also heard you talk about in relation to the Mazdan idea of the fravashi, that um, mm-hmm. the, the nature, which, which indicates that the nature of the soul is essentially voluntary, like the name, like, like the term fravashi means what the, those who have chosen, right, something mm-hmm. like that. So can you talk a little bit about that, how that works into it? Do you think that there's a metaphysical basis for why human beings have this natural inclination to be to want to be free and voluntary. Yeah, well, that's the, the, the when a person confronts or realizes or allows himself to uh, to experience their individual uh, soul, what the Greeks, ancient Greeks, would have called the daimon, what the Germanic peoples might call a philia or something of that nature, and uh, the Iranian people called it fravashi. Is this divine part of ourselves, which uh, is our highest uh, uh, being, form of being within our individuality, and that uh, that thing is the sort of seat of our religious life, in, in the sense that that's what we seek to uh, to uh, actualize. And uh, so uh, this is not unique to the Indo-European people at all. You look, go to Japan, see the kami, which means God, God is divine being. But also each person has a kami. And so people who fulfill their kami nature and completely enter into it become like gods or goddesses, and those people may be a sword maker here, or a priest, or this, or that, all kinds of different ways that they manifest these, because they are individuals, and uh, all of these divine beings are, begin as individuals, and are never going to be melded into a melting pot of souls and lose their individuality. They are pre-existing individuals, and uh, so that's who we are. And so we, we have chosen, we, those Froashis, uh, going back to the Iranian one, which tells the most sort of profound story about this concept, that those volunteered to come and, and fight for the good in a world where they would find opposition and in a world where that being would not be any more than Ahura Mazda, the, the highest form of divinity, is not omnipotent, can suffer uh, defeat, setback, uh, can be injured, can be hurt, uh, can be is vulnerable, because in a battle, in a fight, it's not a pre-ordained uh, uh, that you will win every battle in this war. And so uh, people, humans, individuals, uh, all of them that we know and all of them who we are, are all injured, uh, wounded warriors. And those wounds are manifest themselves in our uh, dysfunctions, our, our personality problems, our, our all of the things that are wrong with us that are where we are less than perfect are the result of injuries incurred in this battle. 
but the point of voluntarism, the idea that but we are here by our own volition, mm-hmm. and uh, that's important. The importance of myth to mental health in this regard. We talked about myths as a magical concept earlier, uh, and here's a, another one that, that if you believe they uh, accept victimology, I didn't ask to be born. I'm, why am I here? I can't stand this, blah, 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 blah. Said, no, this myth says, you came here of your own volition. You are here because you volunteered to be here. Now, if you start with that assumption and you instill that in, in people, uh, which we say, well, that's probably most lo- logical. If we are spiritual uh, beings, if we have a divine uh, nature, if we have a spark of the divine, like the German uh, mystics, like uh, Meister Eckhart, the Fünklein, the spark of the divine, which are all heresies, you know, get you burned at the stake if you taught them, and you weren't well connected enough. These things are anti-dogma of Christianity, but people believe them because they seem to be true. They, they, they ring true, that idea. And that is the same thing as whether it's the Fravashi or the Kami nature or the Finkline or whatever, that there is a spark of the divine in us all individually. And it uh, doesn't make us perfect, but it is the goal of perfection toward which each of our uh, beings strive. And with that myth, we are and then endowed with power, with potency. We are, we are not rendered impotent victims of, uh, of Adam's uh, misjudgment or whatever, or of any other kind of victimhood that one wants to imagine or project. But rather, at that point, you realize, I'm here of my own volition, mm-hmm. and so I've got to... I have the power to do something great, good, and, and, and successful, and I'm empowered to do so, and so that's, I'm already halfway there. If I believe I, I can do it, then uh, I'm halfway towards being, uh, actualizing that. But if we are told that we are, you are a damned sinner, you are no good, um, if you do good, it's only because God lets you do good. That is the orthodox, uh, or causes you to do good. It's God's doing, not your doing. If you said, I did good because I am good, that's heresy. That's against Augustinian doctrine of uh, original sin. You were the product of original sin, therefore you were a damned sinner. That God only can only be saved by God's grace, which means God's gift, free gift of salvation, to you, you are impotent and passive in this whole process. And so it is an anti-human program or dogma because it disempowers humanity. So if if you decided to come here, if you can say say to anyone, you decided to come here, I can say, I decided to come here, that means that you have personal responsibility for being here. You're responsible for your existence here. And that's one of right. the fundamental. That's one of the fundamental left-hand path ideas. You know, that's like one of responsibility or responsible. That's one of the nine satanic statements. It's one of the most basic ideas. Mm-hmm. 
so you know, and it's the beginning of uh, you know of, of good, of a good good life and, and happiness. You know, which of course, uh, going back to the Muslim thing, it is the 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 goal. Uh, that is a, a goal, if not you know the main goal. You if you're happy, you're you're fighting the 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 lie, the bruge, and uh, you are uh, injuring the, your opponent to the the divas and so forth more effectively than in any other way is to be, to be uh, to gain happiness individual right. happiness that right. is success that is you know whereas again he looks at the Christian says oh no we're here as a veil of tears we're here to suffer and to be put oh it's awful and if we just uh, are obedient and bear our suffering uh, in a grim way and white knuckle it through life then we'll be rewarded later that's just like a you know secularized Soviet Union why would the Soviet Union the people in the Soviet Union live that dreary horrible life for those 70 years oh we're doing it for the future generations when birth will be paradise. What? <laughs> You're telling me I'm just going to die and go away. I will be reap none of these rewards. I'm just going to suffer now. I mean, you're not even giving me paradise in the afterlife because you deny it. That exists. That is mm. crazy. Wow. <laughs> Well, if you don't believe it, I will kill you. <laughs> yeah. I'll go with that then. You know, maybe I'll at least get to drink some vodka tonight. Right. Oh, yes. you to gulag. <laughs> you make it even worse. <laughs> you think factory is bad? Wait till you see gulag. <laughs> you work for Soviet <laughs> states. For Soviet <laughs> Superman. <laughs> so yeah, that's pretty so, crazy. So, so what do you think? So do you think the fundamental nature of man is good? Oh yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, but we're wound, but we're wounded we're warriors. I mean we're here, but we're and some people they just uh, like you wouldn't say well like this here we have a, pl- a platoon of Marines and they went through you know, they fought on. Uh, at Iwo Jima or whatever these guys well they don't look like warriors to me half of them have their legs blown off and whatnot. Uh, so they don't look like such good warriors to me they can't even walk this is well, you know well that's because they were the, the battle is tough mm-hmm. and uh, you, when you're exposing yourself to harsh conditions as a, as a part of your duty then you will inevitably sustain uh, wounds, you know. Yeah. And some are stronger than others, you know. But, uh, you know, on contrary, I cannot shake the idea because it's, of course, part of the Germanic thing. Uh, so an Indo-European thing in general, uh, generally Muslims for the most part are Zoroastrians, Orthodox Zoroastrians, for whatever reason, uh, don't. Uh, promote, believe, or uh, uh, have as a part of the official religion the idea of reincarnation. But uh, I'm pretty well convinced that that's got to be part of, of the whole uh, system, the way mm-hmm. it, it, that it works. You know. So for me, when like di- you know, d- digging to this level, digging to that level, um, where I can say. You know, the fundamental, my fundamental nature is good, and that's the fundamental nature of people. And that good has to do with fighting against um, 
fighting against anti volunteerism, anti individuality, mm-hmm. coercion against, and control, yeah, coercion, exactly. That's that, that 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 lays it all out that the fundamental sin, the only real sin is coercion. And once mm-hmm. you realize that, it's like all of the other problems about right or wrong, everything like falls into place. And I think it's an important thing for people to understand now because so much of the left-hand path is kind of being, um, it's kind of being taken over by uh, moral relativism and, and postmodernism and all these things that say, well, everything's just, everything's just relative and, and, you know, everything is whatever. But the problem with that is then people come into the world and they're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm whatever, this and that, and, 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 and nothing really matters. And they're just kind of suspended that way. And it mm-hmm. makes them, in one sense, it makes them, it can make them dangerous because why not use coercion on other people? That's that you, you start moving into this one, um, this, this theory about how to make it through life is, well, you've you got to use some coercion on people. You've got to use a little coercion mm-hmm. on people. We've got to fight. That's no, they have, the government has to take our money so they can go kill people that I don't know in other countries, you know? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and collect and our taxes. Right, right, exactly. You know, so confiscate our wealth, uh, you know, for this purpose at the point of a gun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes, it, it makes us vulnerable. It makes people vulnerable. And, and to me, the left-hand path always represented, when I came in contact with it, it represented, um, it represented taking responsibility. I mean, that was one of the things that I read the satanic Bible when I was like, you know, 13 years old or whatever. And I was like, wow, that's like heavy. That's deep. Mm-hmm. No one, no one in all the churches that I've been to ever said anything about that. And nothing in all, any of the occult books and wicked books I'd read said anything about that. Uh, you know, it, it said something really empowering. And it also said, you know, that I was okay. Right. And said there wasn't anything fundamentally wrong with me because, because I want, you know, want things for myself and I want to, you know, be successful or I want to, you know, do this or that. Um, and, and so I thought that was really empowering. That's kind of like the essential aspect of it. And I feel that you really, really hit on all of these things in your book, Lords of the Left-Hand Path, which I have to talk about for just a second because I think it's such an important book for the movement, um, self-deification, individualism, initiation, which means working towards completion, and, and magic, which means that we have will and that we can change things and we're here for some kind of purpose. All of this, to me, sounds like, you know, th- this all sounds like a fabashi to me when I encounter mm-hmm. this idea. There's no, there's no, I don't see any conflict with it at all. It's like you're talking about the same thing. Right, yeah, right. That's uh, the thing about the... Uh, uh, where you see these old uh, ancient systems where that uh, see it a divine part of, of the individual human being, uh, then sees uh, little for, you know, go- gods and goddesses in people. So, uh, and that is what this, for example, in the Mazdan thing or the Germanic thing, it encourages heroism, right? that people mm-hmm. can be heroes, that they should aspire and uh, be motivated towards a heroic life. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, that's that's good. That means that uh, things, good things, will be done, and that happiness will be achieved more readily because people who do things that are meaningful with their lives are going to be happier than those who wallow in meaninglessness. Absolutely. So, so one of uh, my um, Twitter followers, Scotati, wanted me to ask you a question. Can you talk a little bit about the Polarian method? What is oh, it? Yes. How has it been used? Mm-hmm. How, can, how, can, how can people benefit from it? Well, it's uh, one of one of the essential uh, patterns that I've used in, in my life, and that comes about through uh, exposure to scholarly uh, methodology. Uh, because I started off life as a with my dabbling in the, the stuff when I was in high school, and and uh, subsequently uh, I would be a, a regular old uh, occultozoid nincompoop, you know, waiting for the comet Kahootek to show up or whatever kind of nonsense. And then I was exposed to the academic world. I was going to college, but that doesn't mean crap. You know, you can still be a nincompoop, as we all know. Uh, but I uh, got interests in the Germanic uh, tradition and culture and, and all of that, and then was exposed to great men uh, like Edgar Polme in this regard. And uh, so this is a, the, 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 the intellectual uh, aspect of analysis and learning and gaining the tools that you need, languages and all of the hard work that goes into that part of life and of uh, your interest is a, a one a pole of, of things. It's, it's, I wrote something recently on a Facebook post, got a lot of people off, up in arms uh, about uh, the, the, uh, the power, the uh, false power of, of holding weird beliefs, you know, of uh, holding wacky beliefs. The more wacky the belief you hold, the more energized you get. Just like you're listening to to Art Bell and eh, crazy shit. Oh man, you know, it's just like you're just making yourself anxious, unhappy. But you're, you know, let me find something really bizarre to believe and and just embrace that. Brace the hell out of it. And that's, I'm just getting all excited over that. That is wrong. The Polarian method is your antidote to that kind of nincompoopery. And that is, let's look at reality. Let's, let's delve deeply into the, uh, uh, into the intellectual, logical, rational side of things. And in, in a sense, we are replicating what Plato was talking about, that you'll, you need to train your mind in the objective, in, in uh, dianoia for a long time, in or, and then release this uh, kind of uh, skills and uh, these constructs that you have developed, these uh, abilities you have acquired, onto more subtle things. And in so doing, you will get a things out of it that no occultozoid nincompoop could ever get out of it. 
uh, as far as reality and being getting real results, not just getting yourself like using it like it's some kind of a a mess addict or something, just getting you excited, just getting you bouncing off the walls about UFOs and this, that, and the other thing, uh, but rather uh, how to uh, to to uh, come to something at the end that your product, which is your own soul, your own mind, your own uh, being, uh, that that's what the idea of the Rune Guild, for example, or other initiatory organizations, you see that uh, a guild might have, well, we're going to, uh, uh, we're a shoemaker guild, so we're going to make really fine shoes here. Well, mm-hmm. uh, a, a university originally or initiatory school, your product is yourself. And so you have to to uh, to use this kind of a method, which has a, a pole of inspiration and uh, insight, and all of those kinds of uh, things where you're going to go in that direction. But you've got to be balanced in this polar uh, model with the objective, with the. Uh, with the logical, rational, and that's what I see a lot of people nowadays seem to be more than ever uh, enthusiastically fleeing logic and reason. Mm-hmm. You know, in politics and all kinds of things, people are just uninterested in being reasonable. Mm-hmm. And the Polarian method is the balance, balance development of uh, logical and reasonable data with inspiration and uh, not allowing either one to dominate the other and becoming uh, uh, overblown with uh, inspiration so that you throw caution to the wind, but at the same time harnessing your inspiration and not trying to to limit its power, but, but, but trying to direct and harness its power to a positive end. Uh, so something kind of emerges, like from the interplay of these two extremes. Is that is that something like the force of Runa? Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. That's uh, well. Runa is a uh, is lies at the root of the process before it even that process even starts. Where you say there is something there that I want to discover. There's something hidden about myself, about the world, about everything. Everything I encounter, there is something unknown about it. Therefore, I am called upon to discover it as best I can. These things in the Polarian Method are my uh, sets of my, in my toolbox. It's like an archaeologist might have, uh, you know, some measuring sticks and, and, you know, a spade and all the little tools that the other guy might need to uh, go about the business of discovering things and, and, and realizing what they mean. But, uh, so you have tools, and the Polarian Method is a, is a method uh, which helps us uh, acquire a, a better product of ourselves, a better initiatory uh, process. And we see this is not unique. I gave it a name that, uh, uh, that makes it, you know, so, something that uh, 
gives it more uh, a memorable nature rather than just sort of having these methods and not really giving it a uh, kind of an interesting name. But uh, I think uh, other people have done it, but uh, in the philosophical and initiatory systems, I think certainly Dr. Quino is an example of that. I mean, no one is, is more inspired and comes up with things through inspiration more than him, yet at the same time, uh, few of us know anyone who is more uh, disciplined in his intellect and mind than him either. So, yeah. so he, he sort of exemplifies it. Uh, I, I just gave it a, a peculiar name of my own. It's based on the, the this idea of Odin being this polarized entity stretched between Oscar and hell, between life and death, between all, all polarities. You see, and if you look at the Germanic cosmology, it's just a complete system of of polar opposites. Mm-hmm. You know, between fire and ice, between the, the Vanir and the Jotuns, and the, between the, the dark elves and the light elves, and the, this, and I just pull, pull, pull everywhere. The cold cosmos is is a series of uh, polarities. Mm-hmm. They synthesized. Here, in in, yeah. in the center in Midgard. So, so uh, that's the uh, origin of it. So you mentioned. So we're talking about Aruna here. Uh, I believe in nineteen seventy four is when you first heard the word Runa. Can you uh-huh. talk a little bit about how that happened and what that was like? Oh. Yeah. Well, like I said, I was an occultozoid nincompoop. And uh, I was hanging around with people, that, you know, uh, cult-type people. It was in the air, of course, in those days. But at the same time, it wasn't all that uh, popular. There wasn't that many institutions, places to go. So like in Austin, Texas, there was a thing called the Nexalist Collegium. They taught all kinds of esoteric, occult kind of courses. It was dominated by Wiccans, or the guy who was a Wiccan character. And all of that, and uh, and so uh, we went once to a uh, to a uh, like a psychic fair up in Dallas, and there was this guy there named Norbu Chin. He was a Tibetan monk, you see, <laughs> but uh, not really. But anyway, he he uh, he did stage magic, which we were too young and dumb to realize. And, you know, he would do things like great Tibetan spiritual exercises such as passing a giant needle through a balloon and other uh, great uh, spiritual things like that. And so this one person in our sort of group became obsessed with him, sort of. And so I've, got, I've been in green contact with this character. Okay. And uh, so I'm going to go. I found out where he lives. And so we're going to go visit him. We're gonna, I'm going to go and he'll recognize me, you know, he'll know who I am because uh, we've been, you know, doing God knows what in our dreams for the past three weeks. And so we got in the car and drove to a place near Huntsville, the south of there, kind of near Houston, really, more near Houston. And uh, we were out in an oil field, man. It was like, you know, these things, you know, those things you see them, or the, the, uh, those burn-off 
pipes or whatever, they were all over the place there. And it was just kind of a desolate place. And we went to this trailer there. And uh, she goes up to the door and comes out. And, and he, this guy comes out, but he doesn't look like he did at the psychic fair, that's for sure. He's just like wearing a T-shirt and you know, drinking a beer or whatever. I just see him you know, pointing and waving his arms and you know, telling her to get away, obviously. And so she uh, comes back to the car, sits down, and says, He's not ready to talk to me yet. <laughs> <laughs> so we drive off, uh, you know, back to Austin, uh, and, uh, and so we're kind of, you know, so it's, uh, it was the summertime, hot, no air conditioning uh, in the car. It's uh, 1974. It's, uh, as I say, it was a quiet trip home, you see, because nobody wanted to say anything. And so I'm just sitting in the back seat, just kind of dozing. And uh, but you know it's just kind of very tension, much tension and all that. And so I'm just kind of dozing, and just boom, just in my ear, you know, this word just says Runa. And I kind of knew what it was referring to, but not exactly. And so uh, I uh, so okay, this has something to do with runes and Germanic runes and things like that. I'd heard about and. Uh, so I went to the University of Texas library, I was a student there then, and, uh, and uh, I went and I looked up the cartel, looked for all this stuff on runes, which I uh, was fairly competent in German at that time, so I couldn't get German books and everything. And I got this whole big stack of books on runes and started reading about them. And one of the books in there was Carl Spiesberger's book, Runenmagie, it was just, you know, a practical manual of rune magic in the Armanian tradition of, uh, that he wrote in 1955. And so I just started studying about, oh my gosh, look at this stuff, you know, scholarly stuff, magical stuff, all kinds of things. And so, but that word I heard, and then it was like, that is a word. And it was like, but the rest of my life, I've been trying to unpack that word and that experience and that that whole, what does it mean? And uh, that's where it started immediately. Like the next day I started and that's, and I've been going ever since. Mm. But uh, it, uh, it was, it was kind of like a parts fall thing there in the sense that you're off on a wild goose chase. It's like a fool's errand. Uh, but, you know, I went along for the ride. I didn't say this is ridiculous or nonsense or just I think I'll stay home. I wish I, I might have wanted to. But uh, I, I went along for the adventure, and it was nothing to – except I, I wouldn't have had that exact experience if I hadn't gone on that wild goose chase. So part of the runa message overall also is uh, you got to get out – you know, you got to be willing to – do some things maybe that are uh, risky, silly, uh, foolish, perhaps, uh, to in order to get at, in order to have the, the experience that you need to have. And uh, that was something I was always doing or ready to do, that sort of a romantic uh, part of me, you know, it's not, I'm not very careful, I wasn't as a young person, you know, sometimes I did things I shouldn't have done, you know, I mean, 
talking about fighting against communism, or whatever, I you know, went to Hungary and you know did like dangerous missions and things like that, uh, trying to help people get out of Hungary. But I had no business doing that kind of stuff, and almost got myself in big trouble there. Wow. You know, this was back when I was 18 years old. And, uh, you was, know, that, was, that, was this through, a, through the military or some? No, no. I was in a German language school and met this guy who was a Hungarian guy who'd escaped. And there were people there who were trying to escape, but, you know, were idiots sometimes. Like this one guy he, that I was trying to help, he would uh, say, okay, I'm going to get my plan, you know, how to get out of the country. And then he would do things like give himself a going away party. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're Hungarian. We send the police. We say, okay, we're going. You know, know what to do with this guy. You know, he's he's going to be skedaddling tomorrow morning somewhere, and we'll just nab him. So, but anyway, and, and this is this is while Hungary Hungary's under communism. Yeah, this is 1970. Uh, it's 1971. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it was like I went. I, you know, you had to get a visa. Go to Vienna, get a visa, you know, and then wait. And okay, here you go. And I went in, and I and without asking that, I'm sure there was something in there about where I wasn't supposed to go or what I was allowed to do. But I didn't even look at that. I was supposed to go to this uh, town down south, the southern part of uh, Hungary, and uh, Sexard, Sexard is the name of the town. Uh, south of Budapest, and uh, so I went down there, and there's where these people were, these friends of this guy, and hung out with them for a while and gave them the messages they needed to get, and then they gave me their return message and all, and uh, I was hanging out there about the second day or so, uh, middle of the night or very early in the morning, you know, banging comes at the door of the of this guy's parents' apartment where I was staying, and uh, it's like the, you know the police, because their whole yeah that kind of you know with their whole red stars and you know, big big giant and all that kind of stuff when they like take me down to the to the police station which is like this giant building with this giant red star on top of it and they take me in there and interrogate me not you know the guy told me so they won't use rubber hoses or anything like that on americans so don't worry too much about it <laughs> <laughs> so okay and uh so i'll go and uh so you know none of that happened they just they just told me you're not supposed to be here you're just like you're not even allowed to be in this town you know uh, you're, uh, so so get out and you have like how many ever hours it was to get out of Hungary uh-huh. and so I uh, get on the train and woo, you know head out go up to Budapest and, I, and in those days the Hungarian trains were still steam engines mm-hmm. so when you got to the Austrian border Austria of course like the rest of Europe was on had electric trains so it was a big deal to change the engines and that sort of thing. So the train sits there in in Hungary, sits on the tracks while they're changing this uh, uh, engine. So it sits there for several minutes, 30 minutes or so. And, you know, in uh, Europe, you have the, the blow a whistle. You know, it's like that means we're just about to take off. But so I heard the whistle, and I thought, man, I made it, you know, because I had this stuff stuffed in my pants and all that. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm free. I've got it. I'm ready. And uh, so then the door opens to the compartment. This big, giant policeman says, Step on flowers. Come and see me here. Huh? You know, he doesn't speak oh, German. No. And so he takes me off the train to this little state, little building off, off to the side. And, uh, and, uh, and the train that I was gonna, supposed to be on pulls off into the darkness, you know, by going off into uh, Austria. Mm-hmm. And there I am. Oh, yeah. And so I'm in this room, you know, and there's all these guys with machine guns and shit. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, oh, man. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, they do, they they talk to me, they say this, they say that, they uh, ask me what was I doing there. I'm just saying, I'm visiting friends, I met this guy, and just, he said, go visit my parents. I just, you know, that's it. They said, uh, did they give you anything, are you carrying anything? And I said, no. And they didn't search me like you said they wouldn't. Uh, they just kind of looked at my bags and stuff like that. And uh, so they gave me the, you know, kept me there for a while. Then they said, okay, there's out there, there's this, there's this little, what, an engine with one car on it. It's going to take me back, you know, take me over to Austria. And so I go in there and say, okay, go in there. And so then I'm sitting in this car at the back of it, the very back of it, uh, just an open car. And uh, there I am. Okay, waiting, waiting, waiting. When is this thing going to leave? You know, and through the door up front of this car, the door opens and a little man comes out, and he's wearing like a like a you know later hose, a little hat, and all this. He's like dressed up like an Austrian gnome. Okay. And uh, he sits down at the other end of the car and starts talking to me in German. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, what were you doing there? I bet you, you know, he was trying to make me believe that he's an Austrian guy, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I see. Because uh, I look at me, and I say, I'm dressed like an Austrian. And uh, and so he says, oh, yeah, I bet you really put one over on, did you? And I said, I thought I had something, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, did you have anything? I bet you really got it, right? You got it. You really, you know, showed him. I bet you really tricked him, didn't you? <laughs> No, I don't have you know, I was like, I don't have anything. I don't know what you're talking about. And so uh, he said, oh, okay. And so that was their last effort, you know. Wow. And so then I was sitting in that car, and I see the guy jump out of the engine up front and, you know, skedaddle over to that guardhouse over there where I was interrogated. And the train pulls off, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But that's wow. <laughs> Well, for an 18-year-old kid just out of high school, you know, and that kind of a thing, it was pretty, pretty. No, that's amazing. Part. I mean, you you experienced you experienced um, you know uh, communism and collectivism and the state under that like firsthand. You know, and yeah. I well, mean, when we were coming in to 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 Hungary, this is how the way things were then. Where trains was just coming into Hungary, and there were like. Hungarian, or maybe they're Russian, who knows, uh, tanks and other things like turning donuts, and the, the military guys were standing up and pointing their guns at the train, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of like 
they were like doing some kind of maneuvers, but it was obviously to intimidate. These were all tourists or something coming from the west into the east, and that was like their greeting uh-huh. party, you know. Wow. But uh, one thing this guy told me, he said, only the most stupid people in our country, you know, become policemen and do, you know, become like, you know, operatives of the party and that sort of thing. He said, so for that reason, oftentimes, you know, we can get away with a lot more than we would otherwise just because they're not too smart. Yeah. You know, they're just uh, go along. That their, their whole pathway to power is obedience mm-hmm. and convincing those above them that they are more obedient than you know, the other guy in class. So right. they get rewarded for that. Right. That's what That's people what... don't understand is that mass collectivism like that, it always leads to more incompetence. And it mm-hmm. should be obvious. It should be obvious. I mean, just, you know, you or I could go into a, you know, government-run post office, you know, or, or the DMV, and you immediately see the effects of, of like, a, a governmental um, authority on things it immediately leads to apathy and incompetence. Um, but you know, the, um, a lot of the people that I know in central Europe now, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to know a, a few really cool people over there. I, I have a really good friend who used to live in East Germany. I know a guy in Hungary and, and, and whatnot. And it's like the, the people there now are so there. This is one of the last places in Europe where people are very, mm-hmm into these ideas about independence, decentralized governmental systems, and and, and probably tribalism because Mm -hmm. they went through generations of first being, you know, being fucked by the Nazis and then being fucked by the communists after that. So Mm -hmm. they can see that there's not, you know, they just kind of have a rejection of both of them. And so they're very, they're trying to, they're trying to stay out of the, they're trying to avoid being subsumed by the, by the EU and, and, and maintain independence over there. And that's like one of the last places on, on Earth right now at the moment. One of the interesting places, I would say, um, mm-hmm. on, on Earth right now, um, that maybe there's some, some possibilities. I think so. Well, there's always, of course, a lot of talent and ability and so forth. It's just like this guy that I knew, he... Uh, he uh, was Hungarian, but his mother's side of the family was German, mm-hmm. and so they had like ethnic. You think this old oh, communists? Well, now we think of what well, uh, it wouldn't be this, but it was. That was like uh, because your father is like an affirmative action. Because your mother's side of the family is German, you don't get to go to medical school. I don't care what your uh, grades are. Right. You know, because that we're trying to, the German yeah. influence on the country in the Austro-Hungarian yeah. Empire thing, you know, we're trying to cleanse the intelligentsia of German influence. Right. And so you can't stay. That's why he left. You know, that was the main reason, because he wanted to become a physician. And uh, nowadays he has a practice both in uh, Germany where he got his medical degree, and uh, and in Hungary. So uh, he was able to go back and you know, have a practice there, too. But wow. so how fascinating. That's when people think, oh, the world won't change. The world is changing in our lifetime. Dramatic, huge swings, changes. Things, things can change for the worse. 
as we've seen, and they can change for the better. You know, but it's not, uh, things are certainly more volatile than most people uh, believe they are. Yeah. You know, even when we confront systems like (laughs) communism, as we were growing up, I think that's going to be there forever. That's not going away, you know. But I was really into, you know, anti-communist uh, romanticism, you know, when I was growing up in uh, 1968 was the time of the, the, you know, the Czech Spring and all that, so that yeah. was in the news and all, and uh, I read about, you know, 1956 and Hungary and that kind of thing, so I was all into that, and uh, so I got to live uh, a little bit of that. But see, there's again uh, that Runa thing, or that thing willing to do crazy stuff just for and it comes down to an 18 year old kid that's the kind of thing where you go uh, I'm volunteering to go to Vietnam mm-hmm. for an adventure I'm 18 you know I'm just full of this kind of energy I have no bit you know I mean that's what I'm programmed to have right and uh, right. you do some dumb things sometimes but uh, if you survive then <laughs> I'm not saying it was any big giant heroic thing in my case but uh, you know if you do get through it uh, it does make for a, a story one way or another oh, it makes a great uh, it makes a great story it's very yeah. exciting yeah very I remember this one thing talking about communism that kind of, I was hitchhiking at the end of my journey over there in the early 70s uh, I hitchhiked to Berlin and back and uh, that was you could do that kind of thing back then and uh, I was with this guy, you know, I was just there hitchhiking also, and also an American, and he was like, had this long hair, he was a hippie, and he was espousing these communist ideas, and, uh, you know, like, oh, communism, it's really cool, man, you know, it's really the way we ought to go, you know, you let's free Angela Davis, man, and all that, and I thought, okay, whatever, and we were in this car with this German driver, you know, and we were in the back seat, and I uh, said, come in, and he was going on about this stuff right there. And I just said, look at this. Look look up on those, you know, this guard station up there. See those two guys up there? Why there are two of them? Because the one guy would run if he had the chance. You know, these people are. Mm-hmm. And then, like on cue, <laughs> this, this police guard, you know, this border guard, you know, leaned into the car and looked at that guy with his long hair and grabbed a hold of his hair and started jerking on it. Saying, what are you doing? You know, just like yelling at him and shit like was just oh. abusing him. You know? Wow. He, that, was a, that was another quiet trip. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, mean, I didn't want to say, but, you know, here, here, here's your guy, and this is your hero. <laughs> right. You know, he knows God, better man. than you. You need to cut your hair, man. Yeah. <laughs> Comrade says so. <laughs> you know, think he learned, do you think he learned a lesson from that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, they just don't do it right, man. Right. You no, know. that's what they said. That wasn't, well, that wasn't real communism. Yeah, he was some kind of... Yeah, that wasn't there. They don't make you conform or anything, man. They just let you be free. Right. <laughs> what? But who's going to pay people, for it? It's like I mean, what's going problem. on now. And you think, like, 
how can people be so stupid, you know, and not realize where this kind of thinking ends? But yet, I saw, like in that case, there are people who have it right in their face, who are being abused by it directly and still don't see the light. Yeah. Because they have a preconceived belief that uh, just one or two experiences or a, 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 a word to the wise or whatever is not going to change easily or quickly. Well, you know, there's two things. One thing is that when people commit themselves to a certain ideology like that, and, and this is what happens with the president. You know, you see this every every four years in America. We see this in the presidential election cycle. When someone commits themselves to a certain, you know, president, then they cannot they cannot admit, you know, that they invested, you know, their their time and energy in something that is wrong. Because this is what always happens: a new president comes in, and then he immediately starts doing fucked up shit, you know. Um, and but they can never admit that they invested in something wrong. And the other thing that's going on, though, is that if you step out of line, you, you have to support, you know, when you have, mm-hmm. like, you're living in a situation where, um, you know, you, you have, like, secret police like that. Or, I mean, even you can see this in a microcosm of social media right now where the danger of being publicly shamed about having the wrong idea, right. it, it, co- it causes people to kind of act like lemmings and just, like, kind of mm-hmm. fly to whatever, whatever is the popular decision just kind of fly to that and stay there and be safe because it's the expedient thing to do. You know, if you have, if you have, you know, anything to lose, you know, by being called out or being singled out like that, you know? Yeah. And that, uh, but that the, the things which are the litmus tests for this sort of thing are, uh, kind of quacky, abstract, uh, ideological constructs. They aren't practical uh, things of, of, of life. See, that's where you can start to say, well, tribalism is kind of like that. Just like my guy is my guy, my tribe. I support them because they are my tribe, et cetera, and so forth. So it may say, well, that's kind of a collective thinking or some of the similar kind of constructs. But I think that that is where it was meant to be uh, applied, just like mm-hmm. socialism itself. Uh, in a family, we have socialism often, and nobody thinks about it. I mean, if my father has money, and then he says, oh, you're, you're just starting out here, let me buy you a car, let me do this or that. You didn't earn it, I'm giving it to you, uh, because you're family. I have it, you need it, I'm giving it. And, and it's okay because there's no resentment or anything because that's dear old dad. I mean, that's family. Aunt so-and-so gave me a car. Whatever it is, it's family socialism. There's an organic context for this. And we're all family, and so any outside you know, people, I don't care if my brother is crazy loon or whatever, I'm going to come to his defense right when because that's that's why that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're misapplying that, just like in politics. Say, so, well, I'm a Trump person, or I'm a this person, or that, and so then somebody attacks them. Then so then they get all, uh, you know, tribal and, and kind of like it's misspent or misplaced tribal instinct applied yeah. to macro politics, or really what stuff they're seeing on TV, right? 
on the news channels or something, and they're getting all bit out of shape and all excitable about stuff they're seeing on TV, which has about as much to do with them as, you know, any other soap opera. Yeah. Well, to me, to me the difference, um, why tribalism, as I'm understanding how we're talking about it, the difference between that and collectivism is the absence of, the, of, of coercion in it, mm-hmm. right? The fact, that, the fact that it's voluntary. If I voluntarily associate with a group of people because I'm going to get something out of it and, and, and I want to and I have common, a common, you know, common culture, language, or property, or whatever, but I'm voluntarily doing it, then that is like, to me, that's not collective. That's not the sense of the word collectivism. I know that it's kind of a broad way that people mm-hmm. use that term. But to me, when I think of collectivism, you know, and the way it's meant, like, as, as being, like, an evil influence, you know, in a way, mm-hmm. the way, say, Ayn Rand would, like, say collectivism, is because there's a coercive aspect to it. There's an ob- obligation to do it. There's, right. there's some kind of, like, force to be in there. And there's no connection you know? between uh, you, you, you and the person. There's three, there, a triangle exists, right? Or there's you, and then there's the coercer, the state, or the people who are doing the coercing, and then the beneficiary of the uh, activity. That is, there's a third party who is going to be the, the your efforts are going the fruits of your efforts are going to be redistributed to them. And mm-hmm. a lot of times people say, Oh, you know, talking about people welfare. No. For example, in the Soviet Union, you know, you saw if you saw pictures of what was going on in the streets in the heyday of the Soviet Union, the streets were broad and empty. There was no traffic, no one had a car. Yet there were motorcades of party officials being motored from place to place. They all had cars. Right. They all had dachas. They all had uh, apartments, homes, farms. It was redistributed to the gang, to the gangsters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's who the, the beneficiary of it all yeah. ultimately is. But they may use, you know, favored, uh, you know, reward favored groups uh, or client people, I just call them clients, you know, with with some kind of reward for their loyalty, for their uh, displays of blind loyalty or whatever, like giving them jobs such as they were and so forth. So, uh, but uh, you will, the, the, the producing person will <clears throat> be coerced into uh, to, to disadvantage for the sake of the, the state, you know, and we see that in unionism, right, mm-hmm. where the union bosses, or and then they have uh, some kind of crazy or some kind of a, a system whereby seniority, for example, or some other ideological uh, litmus test is used to give who's going to get the promotion. That's why I always uh, had a bad taste about unions because. When I was a little kid, my father was in a union. He was in a railroad. He had to be. And uh, he was a very competent person. You know, he did his work really well, and he was young. But uh, he couldn't get anywhere in the in the railroad because it was unionized. And so if a good job came open, it was just the oldest dude in the building got that position. Yeah. He could even be what they call bumped. He could yeah. be 
take his job could be taken away, his good job, and he could be bumped down or into a less desirable position because yeah. some black guy with more seniority wanted that job. That kind of yeah. stuff. That's collectivism yeah. even yeah. you know, so it's not just communist and it is kind of communist, you know, but it's uh, it, it's everywhere and and, and and that kind of thinking uh, and that's the way I understand, like in the Democratic Party, in the House of Representatives, that's why you have some of these characters in mm-hmm. positions of power, because they run totally on a seniority system. Yeah. You and based on, based on ideology, too. Um, even the most basic, basic economics will, will demonstrate, if you study basic economics, it will demonstrate why... Um, you know, like communist systems cannot deal with scarcity. And so all, all communist systems have had incredible, like, you know, um, starvation, you know, mass, mass starvation at a certain point, because this is not even possible for a gov- centralized government system to distribute, you know, food and resources to people who need it as effectively as a free market can. And, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that, um, and, and this is why basic economics is not actually taught in public schools, because if, and right. if people learned about the basics of this, everyone would see immediately that, no, it's ridiculous that you can't redistribute wealth that way effectively. That leads to mass starvation, and the next thing then people start questioning, well, what about taxation and property tax and stuff? Isn't that the same mm-hmm. thing? Well, yeah, it kind of is the same thing and it only got really out of control in America under FDR which was at the same time that we were like competing you know America was competing with you know the, the Russians you know the, the Soviet socialists and the national socialists and the British socialists to see who could redistribute wealth more effectively in their home country and right now here we are you know mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, so I, got, it's, uh, I got another question. I got another question just mm-hmm. coming here from uh, John Grauerholtz. Question for Stephen Flowers: What is the best translation of the Havamal? Opinion of Jackson Crawford's translation. I, I don't have. I, there are too many translations for me to keep up with them. So I, you know, since I read the original, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, don't read too many translations of it. Now, that's an interesting question, though. And in my opinion, no translation can uh, satisfy the uh, desire of the individual to uh, to understand what the text really says. Mm-hmm. And therefore, as, as a matter of fact, I'm going to do most of the Hovamal in a future uh, project of mine. And how I'm going to do this uh, is to produce a, a document, and this is the only way that a non, we say, well, you're telling me that I've got to learn the original language, which is, I know, too much to ask in the sense that you're asking somebody to learn a language that's just a, you know, a little bit less hard than Russian to learn, and so that's not realistic. So why, uh, so we have <clears throat> tools, I mean, these, re, re, uh, these translations, well, the only thing that's going to satisfy a person's uh, desire to know exactly what the text is saying 
is that you have to have a, an interlinear translation wherein every word is accounted for exactly uh, and you are shown, even though you're not privy or not necessarily aware, of how these words relate to one another through a case system such as Latin has or Norse has, etc., that has to be labeled. So if you say this word is in this grammatical case and relates to it in this way, and you have to be a little bit made aware of how the language works in order to really understand because people are interested in these texts in a very specific way about what is it really saying. So that, uh, uh, translations which take poetic license to make it sound good or whatever are all going away from the spiritual person's uh, desire to know exactly what is being said. So uh, therefore, uh, really what one needs is a a translation which is a, a prose translation, which I don't know of any that are, where you just take the, the stanza in question and just translate it uh, in, a, in a prose way. Because uh, with these in highly inflected languages, such as Icelandic is, uh, the words can be in just about any order you want, right? Because they relate to one another grammatically based upon their form, on their endings and such things. So the word order is, can be completely turned on its head. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when somebody says, oftentimes I see this where people well, this says this translates to this, and the original text, they're trying to figure it out, the original text. So then they'll just identify the wrong word you know, with the translated word, and all kinds of horrible things happen. So I don't have any good uh, good news there on that front, but I, uh, that is uh, what would be necessary. And I'm working on a project now, which is really about uh, uh, a rune oracle, uh, various rune, runic oracles. Mm. And I've uh, discovered this method by which uh, uh, the Halvamol is actually a, a divinatory oracle. And uh, and so, in so doing, there, if you're going to then say, I want to know what the high one has to say to me on my uh, issue at the moment, uh, you have to be uh, very you know, translations probably won't do. So that I'm going to try to produce a, a text of exactly the kind I'm uh, talking about for the Hovamol uh, with this, but. Uh, uh, I would say uh, if one is interested enough to really want to know what's going on, then it uh, would be probably best to, to, uh, to pick up a, a book on uh, Icelandic, on Icelandic uh, uh, grammar, or what I did. I mean, I learned Old Norse in school and uh, in the old-fashioned way, but then I... Uh, uh, delved into modern Icelandic, which is absolutely the same language. It's exactly the same language. It's a little bit different, maybe, different pronunciations sometimes. But uh, if you learn, for example, just get the colloquial Icelandic that Routledge puts out, or teach yourself Icelandic, and uh, work through that, mm -hmm. and then uh, get a good 
Dictionary, which you can get online at Please Be Victorson, the big uh, uh, Icelandic dictionary or Zoega dictionary on, online, a PDF nowadays, I think. And you can you know, start to be able to look up the words yourself mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and puzzle it out. You know, but you do need to do some basic uh, work, you know, you know uh, uh, and like I've taught German for years, and I'd always tell people, so, well, you know, you can learn this, so it's no question. I mean, you've learned one language already, right? So, I mean, you can definitely learn a language, so, but you have to, it's work. It is work. There is no doubt yeah. about that. But uh, there is a reward. And it's an unfortunate thing, our whole the attitude, American attitude towards languages. People are more interested now. You see all these miracle, like a Rosetta Stone or anybody. They're just oh, yeah. marketing languages nice, like crazy now. And, uh, you know, I dabble in some of those kinds of things. And I, as a teacher and somebody who's mastered a few languages, I look at these things and I say, you know, you never give up on the belief that there is some miracle <laughs> method or yeah. something, and there isn't. You've got it. It takes X amount of work, X amount of effort, number of hours applied. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, and uh, but there are uh, resources. Uh, technology is providing things that couldn't be acquired before, uh, uh, making it easier, more access to more information. But I would stay away from, or no, don't believe in any translation you see uh, as far as that's concerned. Just that, that if one is that interested, then uh, that's what, what one needs to do. It's not, it's not like a... a Trying to, it's not as hard as trying to learn Sanskrit or Tibetan or ancient Egyptian or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, half much of our language we're speaking now is uh, full of old Norse words. Our whole uh, uh, personal pronoun system, all the their, them, those, and all of that, that's all uh, oh, Norse words, Norse constructs, not old English ones. That uh, shows how much... Uh, the Scandinavian language influenced English in ancient times in the Viking Age. So it's part of our thing. It's uh, it's uh, it's doable certainly, but that's the method I would use. Not try to learn Old Norse out of some old dusty book or with with a whole bunch of linguistics and things like that. But learn uh, basic Icelandic as a living language, and then apply that knowledge to a with an old Norse grammar and dictionary and and as a matter of fact I can give you a the key sort of piece of bibliography of course I have it right here the book uh, is uh, a glossary of uh, key to the elder uh, to the poetic edda itself by Beatrice Lafarge and John Tucker, called Glossary to the Poetic Edda. So it's a it's a dictionary that is uh, just to the Poetic Edda. So uh, it it goes really a long way in uh, honing in on just the the passages in the the uh, work, and so it's. So you wouldn't even need, you know, the dictionary. Although the dictionary, like a Cleesby Vigfusson, this big giant dictionary, 
will give you. And that's one of the things about the language when you look at the original is you may have a word and a translator is going to pick an English word to translate that word with, right? And then all of the connotations of that English word flood into your brain at the moment you read it. Only part of or maybe none of those connotations belong to the Old Norse word. Mm-hmm. So you have to go to the Old Norse dictionary and look at that Old Norse word and say, well, what are, how could this word be translated otherwise? What are really its, what is its semantic field? What does it, what did it connote to the speaker of that language? What, what are the other meanings of it? And if, uh, sometimes there's five, six different meanings and sometimes that's why you say, why do the translations of texts, of these old texts, diverge so much mm-hmm. from one another? It's because they're picking different meanings. It's their interpretation as to what way they're going to translate it. Mm-hmm. And so what you have to go back to is what are the connotations, also the etymology of that word, so that uh, if you can read German, uh, you can go, there's... Uh, Old Norse etymological dictionary, which tells you kind of where those words come from and what their ancient uh, uh, antecedents are and so forth. So you start to get a real picture of what that word really means. And like at university, when we were studying old languages, whether it was Middle High German, Old Norse, whatever, one of the things you have to do is do word studies. And that would be like, you take this word, and uh, like order, let's say, like weird, fate, however you want to, order. And you take that word, and then you say, okay, I'm going to study that word. And you say, oh, is it etymology? Where does it come from? How is it used? What are the different ways in which, what is all, what are all of the meanings of it? Then once you get that into your brain, then when you see that word, all that stuff is there. It's not just order equals fate. <laughs> it's a mistranslation to begin with. Second of all, all the stuff that we believe about fate comes flooding into our brain when we read it, and we are actually no less. <laughs> we were misled by the translation, right? You don't come closer to understanding, but further away. Wow. So uh, those are the dangers. And that's really, those are just the dangers of translations of uh, anything. So all, anytime you're dealing with translation of any kind of original, you're uh, dealing with a, a, wor- a work inspired by the original, but not the exact equivalent of the original. I think one of the key components to learning another language foreign language, and this doesn't apply to old languages, it applies to languages that people speak currently, is beer. Mm-hmm. And I was told this by a German guy. So look, I learned German, I took German when I was in high school for three years. And then I got out of high school and then, you know, I never spoke it with anyone else who was actually German. And so right. then when I met, like, uh, some actual German people years, years later, actually after I, is after I lived in Houston, um, and I met some guys, and, you know, we started, like, talking, and, you know, these guys didn't know any more English than I knew German at the time. 
Yeah. But we had beer. And because of that, we were able to, like, start with words around, you know, what's the word for beer? What's the word for I want another beer? And then you just build from there. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing happened to me. The same thing happened to me when I was in Russia. I was in Russia when I went to Moscow and I was playing with the band Red Flag. Same thing, like, same thing over there. You know, uh-huh. you start out, you start out with the basics. And once you have a beer with someone, everything just starts to flow from there and you start to put <laughs> everything together. Get you know? your inhibitions down. That's another. Exactly. No, that's one thing yeah. that like makes people afraid about learning a foreign language is they're afraid, oh, I'm going to say it wrong and everyone's going to laugh at me. Mm-hmm. But oh, yeah. you get the inhibitions down and you don't care if anyone's going to laugh at you. Everyone's laughing at each other anyhow, you know. Sure. Well, yeah, you gotta. Well, that's the. You gotta jump uh, in to uh, to the. Yeah, be willing or be embrace the making of mistakes. You're gonna make mistakes. I mean, that's always. You know, as yeah. as a teacher, I would try to. Uh, you know, I make mistakes. I I will make mistakes. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Also, uh, in pronouncing, for example. Uh, uh, words that you have to make your mouth and tongue do weird things. Sometimes your face does different things. The muscles move in different ways, and people are reluctant to actually <clears throat> move their muscles in ways that are not familiar to them. And so you do them ex- exercises, make them make funny faces, and you know, getting the inhibitions down and getting sort yeah. of warmed up and, and, and getting. That kind of thing going is essential uh, to uh, you know getting proficiency and, and, and just getting over some psychological uh, barriers. But we do a very poor job having taught us the way we teach. It's just not a classroom is not the place to learn the language. You know, it's got to be one on one or informal. There, there's got to be better. Uh, Methods, right? I would say that schools like universities should uh, say, look, we're not going to teach these people, you know, these hundreds of people, foreign languages in these classes of 20 people, things like that. So I'd say, like, let's let's try to re- reduce the re- language requirement. Of course, they're not gonna, they don't do that because the departments make money by having courses, right? And so, therefore, they want big classes and numerous sections of these things. That's the economics of the university. No, so, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ludicrous to think that you can teach someone a foreign language when they don't want to. They don't have yeah, an individual can. want or need to mm-hmm. learn that language. It's ludicrous. But schools are like, oh, no, well, we have to teach them a foreign language to fulfill some idealistic need so we can de- demonstrate that we're using the stolen money to educate people in some way that's going to benefit some future, like, you know, society. Well, where see, we squandered resources. If they, if they took that money and said, these are the students who really want to learn it, and these are the, the professions or the, the, the majors which really need to know this stuff mm-hmm. that, and would benefit greatly uh, you know, from knowing it, then you say, we're going to teach 10% of what we're trying to teach now. We're going to just teach 10% of that amount, and we're going to do it in a completely different way. 
you know. We will, I mean, you can, like my experience with German, I took a, went to Berlitz school when I was just in high school. I looked at, I was interested in learning German, obviously, I went over there to go to language school, but before I went, I was interested, and, and so I knew kids in my high school that were taking German, and they, they didn't know crap, you know. They couldn't do anything. So or know anything, I'd ask them questions, you know, I was trying to learn it on my own, it was ridiculous, and uh, so, but they were, seemed incompetent, so this is obviously not working for these people, so uh, I went to the Berlitz school, which did work, because they are sitting there, one-on-one, there's a guy sitting there, a German guy, and he don't speak anything but German, and uh, it's just like hours, you know, sometimes two hours, how much ever you can take, and as a 17-year-old or whatever, I could take pretty much, and so, uh, you know, it was pretty intense for just a few weeks and in six weeks I learned more than uh, kids at high school learn more and they learned in a year well over that you know so if you just sit people down and then use these more direct methods you can and once you get a person started in a language and they're used to they're not perfect but they, they got they've broken through the ice you know they're, they're thinking in the language even if it's just me Tarzan you Jane kind of stuff you know they're thinking in it then they've broken through and they can start just really learning on their own through exposure to native speakers, going to these countries, and being just bombarded with information from uh, from the, the you know from the fountain from the original source, and uh, they will just be you know they will do things that are really practical, really work, and so forth. That just years of sitting in a classroom will not get done. Mm-hmm. Will not happen. Yeah. But, you know, there, there are methods, there, there are, there are, we know how to do it, really, but it's the economics of the university which holds progress back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have another question here from a, a Twitter follower, Cranky Puss, wants to know, what do you think of the new Thor superhero movies? I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I haven't seen any of them. You're by really uh, uh, Crystal, my my wife. You know, Crystal. She said, "I, I uh, what about I'm gonna rent, you know, on Netflix or whatever this Thor, Thor movie." I said, "I don't want to see that," you know. And then so it's like uh, when I was a kid, little kid. You know, I was into comic books for a while, like all little kids. But I was into a weird kind of comic books, you know, at the time, this was like the mid-60s, they were these put, put out by this company called Marvel, yeah. and, uh, you know, everybody else is why Batman and, you know, Superman, and it's like, oh, look at these Fantastic Four, whatever it was, Doctor Doom, and uh, so I was in, you know, I, I was there, I mean, that was all cool, you know, but... Uh, uh, like like uh, a lot of things that are fantasy or whatever, I I love it. I, I support it. I think it's great because it uh, opens up interest in you know the, the old the images and traditions and all that. And I I'm not saying that oh it's ridiculous and stupid or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I I just don't uh, have the uh, motivation, you know, to to sit there and watch them. But I think it's good. Uh, good. Certainly, uh, we need, we should have much, much more of our uh, this kind of thing. Like when I was a kid, 
See, kids today or people today of all ages, you know, they, they can't get a clear picture, or it's harder to get a clear picture of what's real and not real as far as, uh, you know, mythic images or historical images, right? Like, let's say 1965 or 60s, I'm sitting there early 60s, and I'm thinking, well, I'm watching the 300 Spartans, or I'm watching, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cleopatra, or Ben-Hur, or uh, or the Ten Commandments, there's Pharaoh, you know, and all that, mm -hmm. and images. I mean, we had a clear, this is what Egypt looked like, you know, this is what uh, ancient Rome looked like, but nowadays I think there's so much fantasy mixed with everything uh -huh. that there's not like a clear thing like, well, that is fake. I mean, that's like somebody's idea of some, you know, silly nonsense. And this is like, has some modicums of when I hear an ancient Roman army is marching down the road. As a little kid, I could get a pretty good image through having seen them in movies of what a Roman army looked like. You know, mm -hmm. a real Roman army. And uh, so that uh, but but nowadays I think there's so much uh, pure fantasy mixed with that, that nobody knows a Roman. I don't know what that, you know. I mean, um, I don't think you could get a, a clear image from a you know a, a, tell a eight year old kid you know eight year old boy say here draw draw me a picture of a Roman soldier you know mm -hmm. that they would get anything close to what they actually looked like. Yeah, that's my opinion. I may be wrong, uh, but uh, but it wasn't that we were all inter you know, all studying this kind of stuff. Although we're actually some of my friends were, you know, we were like reading mythology. Edith Hamilton. It wasn't part of the the uh, you know what the teachers were telling us to read. But we just because we saw all these things in the movies, like Jason and the Argonauts or whatever. That was just our Saturday afternoon movies. And, you know, then we started reading about them and things like that. So, uh, I don't know. It could be great stuff as far as Thor and, and, the, and those kind of things. But, uh, uh, like all things that are fictionalized, you know, you have to say, well, I, I will learn uh, something about what the creators of this narrative want me to believe or think. But it might not be what's in the Edda or what the poets of the Edda wanted me to think or believe. You see what I mean? Right. No, absolutely. So, I mean, I think, I I feel that, like, Hollywood has pretty much destroyed, they've destroyed superheroes for me. Because I used to read these comic books in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, I read, you know, I read Marvel and I read the X-Men and I read, you know, Iron Man and, and all these things, the Avengers that are going on now and Thor and all that. And um, it's like Hollywood has like ruined it. In the same way, Hollywood, I feel they've ruined Star Wars also. They just absolutely uh -huh. destroyed Star Wars. By they lost it me at the Ewoks. Right, right. The Ewoks, no, that absolutely. was it for me. Yeah, the, the Ewoks killed it for me. I was all the way up through episode five um, through Empire Strikes Back. Like yeah. Empire Strikes Back. Where he meets, he goes and he meets Yoda, and you know he goes into the cave with Yoda. You know Luke goes into the cave with Yoda, like the descent of the epic hero. You know, and he confronts evil himself as Darth Vader, and you know 
I'm your father. He cuts off his hand. It's like, I'm your father, you know. Um, that was just epic heroism to me. And to me, that's always just Star Wars up through that one. And, and yeah, the Ewoks, everything after that is just like, it's mm-hmm. just bullshit. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and, uh, the time I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> something, right. Something's happening here. I don't know. I don't like it. Yeah. I felt a lot. Yeah. And did you know that Natalie, like in the next Thor movie, Natalie mm-hmm. Portman, Natalie Portman is going to play Thor. Oh, we're getting into the, Now, they were getting all etic. I was always wondering uh, when if they ever have Thor, I don't know, this, uh, when it happened in the movies, did he ever do any cross-dressing in the movie? <laughs> I've not I mean, seen him do any cross-dressing yet. But, I mean, there's a, famous, there's a famous story about Thor, right, where he cross-dresses. Yes, where he right? yes, Yes, in the city, yeah. The famous yeah, he, cross, he dresses uh, in bridal... A gown, you know, outfits and impersonates Freya in order mm-hmm. to get his hammer back. Right. So, I mean, there's... I used to have, I know, run a little thing blurb once, you know, about the X-rated Edda. There's all sorts of sexual perversions in there, but they're just, of course, half-lines. You know, like Njörger, uh, you know, uh, he, uh, this Avonic god, he, uh, you know, Loki points out, says, uh, you know, that these uh, maidens, you know, uh, pissed in his mouth, you know. And, uh, well, and uh, he, he was apparently liking it. But uh, because none of the accusations that Loki makes are lies, they're just, you know, family secrets or whatever. So there's cross-dressing, you know, water sports, all kinds of stuff in the head of Lucky, you know, has his balls tied to a goat and pulls on it to make Scotty laugh and, you know, some pretty body scenes there. But that's like in paganism, any kind of pagan, you know, uh, humor and outlandish things are not uh, forbidden. Yeah. Excellent. But, yeah, that's, uh, I don't, uh, like this, uh, this series, I watched one episode of this thing called American Gods, mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of like a where the Norse gods or something, you know, are like humans, but, you know, it's like a surreal kind of... I mean, it was just like too much. It was just, uh, you know, a constant, you know, using CGI for, you know, bodies flying apart and gooey, horrible, gory messes. And and, uh, part of it is like uh, there's a great popularity of Viking shows and uh, that kind of thing on television now, apparently. And I, again, support that because that puts, you know, uh, that that sells books for me. I mean, people get interested in it, and then they think, well, there's a certain small percentage of people will actually go, off, you know, on to uh, explore. So that's all mm-hmm. good. I'm not saying anything bad about. But what it, it kind of gets to me sometimes is like the way that the like a Viking or somebody like that is just depicted as typically just like the you're falling right into the way the monks describe them. You know, as demonic. Entities, they're like, you know, serial killers with oars, you know, like mm-hmm. in a ship. But, you know, they weren't that, you know. And uh, so that's, just, uh, they, they uh, apparently, you know, that's again, a, a Viking is a guy you can, 
you can disrespect, or you know, you can stereotype and and put a negative uh, kind of a, a image on him, you know, all you want, kind of a thing. And nobody's going to complain because you know, uh, you know, what difference does it make? You know. Yeah, no, I think the biggest problem you hit on it right there with like CGI. It's like they uh-huh. realized, oh, we can do all these special effects now. Like that was always the problem throughout the '90s. There was always these rumors that. And this is when I was like getting really into the X-Men. I was reading the X-Men comics, and there's all these rumors. They're going to make a movie someday, but how are they going to do all of those special powers and stuff? It's too much. It's always a problem. And so what mm-hmm. happened is that movie didn't come out. It's like after CGI became like just normal, right? Because the first, mm-hmm. you know, first couple of movies that had CGI, it was like real controversial, you know? It's like, oh, you can tell, and it's like, it's like combining cartoons with movies. But eventually, like really quickly, it just became synthesized to where it's really hard for people to tell the difference. And so mm-hmm. now they can do anything in it. And because they can do anything, they exploit that. And that's cheaper for them to do that, to make a movie with all these like just crazy special effects, people flying everywhere and, you know, bodies, ex- you know, bodies mm-hmm. exploding. It's cheaper for them to do that than to write good storylines. Right. And to make an interesting, engaging, like, storyline. It's, it's mm-hmm. cheaper and more effective for them to, like, move through it. And it's like, it's it, like it, it, it has the same narrative structure as hardcore pornography used to have back when they had movies, exactly. hardcore movies with stories sometimes, you know, back in, before right. that was went away entirely. But, uh, you know, they have stories. And, you know, but it was just like the narrative was just get to the next Six, right, right. right. That's, the story it. That's all like, we're doing with the story is just to go from one to the next. The story is just, yeah. The story is like 30 seconds of like setup about why these people are here and then bang, get, you know, get to the money shot. Mm-hmm. So that's that's it, but uh, that really makes it easier on the uh, so writers. But of course, it destroys the whole. Uh, Get interest in stories and that, and the, and and where really where you really engage people's minds, imaginations, and so forth. It's like my friend who just recently died, the uh, guy by the name of uh, Bill Whitliff, who's uh, you know did some interesting uh, films, uh, wrote scripts. He's a screenwriter mainly, although he directed Lonesome, the Lonesome Dove series also. And he's really into the American West, but he also did other things. And uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a writer, you know, really. I mean, he was telling me, I, I started off, I just kind of fortuitously got a job uh, in the late 70s with him uh, packing books for him. He had his, uh, a Texana press, you know. And uh, I did some mythic analyses of some of his early uh, screenplays that he was just finished. They hadn't been made yet. Uh, one called Barbarossa and another one called Raggedy Man. And uh, he just told me, he said, well, telling a story, you got to make people care about your character, the character, mm-hmm. and then have things happen to them. But anything that happens to them will be interesting to the viewer because they care about the character, right? So it can be what appears to be normal, uh, ordinary kind of events, but they, they can have a great impact because they are like real to the person who's, you know, viewing it. And uh, But that's like really storytelling. But as the time went on towards the end of his career, 
they, he just got away from movies because it, 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 there was no, and just started writing novels because he couldn't uh, get the money to tell the kind of stories he wanted to tell, right? There was no violent, you know, car scenes and crashes and, you know, when I mean, they were Westerns, had violence and things like that in them. He, he did redid the, this uh, Legends of the Fall. He wrote the screenplay for that. Hmm. It was based on a book, but it, he did it. He improved on the book, actually. Uh, and, you know, very heroic, very, you know, violent, man, manly men kind of stuff. But they were real stories about real people, but not just totally dependent on just crazy uh, violence, you know. Right. And so you can't get money to to, for, to make the kinds of movies he wanted to make anymore. And then the hoops you have to jump through and the creative control you have to give. That was always the case with the movies, you know. But So he just went off to the end. Yeah. Writing novels, you take total control with what you're, yeah. what you're, you know, telling the story. Wow. Well, Dr. Flowers. Yes. I have to thank you for spending this time with us this evening. And well, thank you, you for uh, listening to my old man rambles. Oh, no, it's been wonderful. I love them. Um, do you have any final words for all of us, for all of all all of my listeners, so they will have something that will help them to survive the dark times before us? Well, I would say the the main thing for the survival of the individual, and not just survival, but again going back to the idea of of, of happiness. Uh, in the simplest kind of a way that I know of that has worked for me is the embracing of the idea of uh, seeking the mystery. Uh, what I call Rheintelruna, that is uh, Old Norse for seek the mysteries. And uh, to realize that life is full of mystery, the world is full of mystery, and the unknown, and that's what excites and uh, stimulates us as human beings or divine selves is the discovery of the unknown, uh, just like reading a book, turning the page, what's on the next page, what's over the hill, that that adventurism of mind and body, of experience, inner and outer, and seeking the unknown and always realizing you don't know everything. All real knowledge begins with an assumption of ignorance. Don't, if people believe they already know everything that's worth knowing, then they're, they're lost. Mm -hmm. They'll never be happy with that kind of attitude. Uh, be ready to embrace the mystery. Excellent. Well, Dr. Flowers, we really look forward to uh, Retrieve Life now coming out. I know you got a, mm -hmm. a lot of other a lot of other great books coming out, and we appreciate all of them. Keep putting them out, and keep doing the the great work that you're doing. And Ryan Till Runa, Ryan Till Runa. All right. So that's hey, it for that part, as I said. That's it. Yeah, no, that's it for that part. <laughs> <laughs> 